0: hello hello this is laurie and tori coming to you from the haunted corners of new england and you're listening to the something wicked podcast the show that delves deep into the topics of true crime haunted histories and all things paranormal dedicated to those that love to know all the spoopy and gruesome details about haunted houses psycho serial killers and creepy cryptids with tales to make you sleep with the lights on on today's episode, we are finally covering our bullshit bridges. Bullshit
1: bridges. We
0: have been planning this one out for a while.
1: It's, it's <laughs> almost been a fucking year. I think it's and, actually been over
0: a year. Yeah, yeah, but we're finally getting to it now. We found a list of three infamously haunted bridges that most of you know about or at the very least have heard of.
1: There's at least one of them out of these you had to have heard of at some mm-hmm. point.
0: We got the Bunny Man Bridge, the Goat Man Bridge, and the Donkey Lady Bridge. <laughs> yeah, Donkey Lady Bridge. <laughs> and we call them bullshit because they are a combination of urban legends and a heaping dose of no fucking thank you for visiting them. Nope, 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 nope. Because nope. they sound super scary. So we are going to cover a bit of their history, fleshing out truth from fiction, what you can experience if you decide to visit, and even some tourist spots in relation to the bridges. So sit back, pop some corn, and let's get it! Hello and welcome back to the show, and for those of you new to the podcast, I'll say thanks for tuning in. As we said in the intro, we are covering three infamously haunted bridges. When doing research on these, I had heard of two of them, but the donkey lady I hadn't and had to check it out, mostly because of the ridiculous ass name. Yeah, I'll say. (laughs) And I found out that is just as creepy as the other two. There were quite a handful that we sifted through, but we narrowed it down to these top three, and there are so many different origin stories for each that we don't know what the true stories actually are, and that's where we will leave it up to you to decide what is fact and what is fiction. And here we go. Whee! Deep in the woods of Virginia sits a lone train overpass. Late at night, you see the tunnel looming ahead. You feel a cold bite of an October breeze and walk slowly in silence. But then you hear the snapping of a twig. Your heart skips a beat and you remember that you're in the woods, so it was probably just an animal, right? But you swear you just saw a tall, dark figure duck behind a tree in your peripheral. So you start running the safety of the bridge just a few dozen feet away. But as you get closer, you notice something swinging off the edges in the breeze. Dead rabbits. You realize exactly where you are, and now it's too late. Just as you reach the darkness to hide in last-ditch effort for safety, you're struck in the back with a hatchet. A few days later, the authorities stumble across a grisly sight a mutilated body swinging alongside the other twisted creatures with a note tagged to their feet that reads, you'll never catch the bunny man. Located at 6497 Colchester Road, about 20 miles away from D.C., in the dense woods of Clifton, Virginia, sits the Bunny Man Bridge. A train overpass steeped in local legend of a crazed killer wearing a blood-spattered rabbit suit wielding either a hatchet or a long-handled axe dispatching those who dare to trespass. And keeping true to our Halloween theme, the Bunnyman Bridge, along with the other two, seemed to have the most activity when visited on Halloween at midnight.
1: Dun dun dun!
0: <laughs> the legend of the Bunny Man began somewhere around 1970 and has since then spawned in upwards of 54 different origin stories and variants. Jesus,
1: fuck, dude.
0: We are only going to cover a few of them, starting with the most popular, Side note, first, shout out to my dad, who gave me the idea of looking into this story because it comes from his neck of the woods and he grew up on tales of the bunny man. Also, I was born in Fairfax County, so pretty much a homestead classic urban legend for you, girl. (laughs) The most common version of the story goes as follows. Around 1904, the residents of Clifton, Virginia, successfully petitioned to have the local asylum slash prison shut down. Since you can't just release a bunch of violent, crazy folks out into the countryside, oh, why not? <laughs> the prisoners were to be transported to another facility. All went well, at least until the transport crashed, killing several of the prisoners and allowing the rest to escape. Oh, shit. All but one of the escapees were rounded up. Skinned, half-eaten rabbit carcasses left hanging from the trees in the Colchester overpass began to appear soon after. Ew. Officials then found the body of Marcus Walster, left hanging from the underpass in a similar manner to the rabbits. Gross. Mm -hmm. Understandably concerned, the police ramped up their efforts to find the madman and soon discovered that the culprit was none other than Douglas A. Griffin, who had been put in the asylum for killing his family on Easter Sunday. When the climactic confrontation came between the authorities and the madman, Griffin was hit by an oncoming train in an attempt to escape. Ever since around Halloween, when the veil between our world and the spirit world is thin, locals claim to see rabbit carcasses hanging from the Colchester overpass. Some have even claimed to see a figure standing there in the shadows. Nobody ventures beneath the underpass to see who it is, though, because the bunny man makes no distinction between rabbits and people, Many variants of the legend have our costume-clad friend going Jason Voorhees on curious teenagers (laughs) who come calling on Halloween night, leaving their mutilated corpses dangling from the Colchester overpass like Marcus Walster so many years before. This widely circulated, widely popular written version of the Bunny Man tale entitled The Clifton Bunny Man and signed by Timothy C. Forbes in Virginia was posted on a website called Castle of Spirits around 1999. This version of the tale is actually quite notable because of the number of specific facts given. Forbes claims that in 1904, inmates from an insane asylum escaped while being transferred to Lorton Prison. One of these escapees, Douglas J. Griffin, murdered fellow escapee Marcus Walster and eventually became the Bunny Man. Not only is the location identified, but also the names of several victims and dates of their murders. The story ends with a challenge for the reader to check the Clifton Town Library for verification of the facts. There are a few tidbits added here and there also that Griffin attached a note to the feet of Walster for the police to find that read, You'll never find me no matter how hard you try. Signed, the bunny man. I mean, if he killed his family on Easter, I guess that
1: gives some sense to the bunny suit? I mean, I think it's just a fucking psych- psychotic break. Yeah. Like,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. But when checked, it's discovered that all of the specifics given were false. Oh, First, there was never an asylum for the insane in Fairfax County. Second, Lorton Prison didn't come into existence until 1910. That's like six years. Mm-hmm. And even then, it was an arm of the D.C. corrections system, not Virginia's. Oh. Third, neither Griffin nor Walster appear in the court records of Fairfax County. Lastly, there was not, nor has there ever been, a Clifton Town Library.
1: <laughs> you could
0: definitely get close
1: at this place that doesn't exist. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Clever. (laughs) The campfire story of the Bunny Man features a few details that remain consistent throughout most versions. That there was a breakout of prisoners from Virginia Insane Asylum. One of the prisoners is said to have attacked people near the Colchester Road Bridge in Clifton with either a hatchet or an axe. The attacks are said to have happened at the stroke of midnight on Halloween at the Colchester Road Bridge, which is known as the Bunny Man Bridge on Google Maps, BTW. What is
1: it really? It really is. Oh, that's fucking hilarious. And the bunny
0: element is commonly related to the suspect wearing a bunny costume, either a fake bunny suit or actual rabbit pelts, depending on the storyteller. Oh, that's gruesome. Fun fact Some people have also said the story of the Bunny Man Bridge may have provided inspiration for the character Frank in the 2001 movie Donnie Darko.
1: I still don't think I've seen Donnie Darko. Oh my
0: God. Yeah, what I is know. wrong with this these so problem. many movies? So here's the problem with Tori. <laughs> She (laughs) lived under a rock for a very long time. So I've been having to slowly introduce her to horror movies. Yeah,
1: well, I was also a wimp of a fucking child, so that didn't
0: help. Well, now you're an adult. Yeah. yeah. You're all grown up, so you get to watch all
1: the horror movies with me now. Yeah, they also don't (laughs) affect me as much now. Anyway,
0: (laughs) this movie... Donnie Darko was directed by Richard Kelly who grew up in Virginia so it's possible he may have heard the story. It has also appeared on Amazon's TV show Lore, the TV show Scariest Places on Earth in their Urban Legends episode in 2001 and was made into a movie back in 2011 and has since then spawned two sequels.
1: Oh, there's a Bunny Man movie?
0: Yeah, I I never even heard of it before I was researching I mean, three this. Bunny yeah. Bunny
1: Man movies?
0: Yeah, I didn't know it was a thing.
1: I guess we both have to watch those ones. Yeah, I don't-
0: I've- they, I, I don't know, for some reason, like, when I looked at the thumbnail of the movie, it looked like a really bad beat ring. Yeah, so... so
1: I think I had Save seen Save it for passing. bad movie night? <laughs> yes. Yeah, we can do that.
0: One version of the urban legend shares that a mental patient escaped from a local asylum and found refuge in the woods around the bridge, distraught by the murders of his wife and daughter, that he may or may not have committed himself, depending on which version of the story you hear. He remained in hiding and lived on wild rabbits to stay alive, leaving their half-eaten remains by the bridge. One year on Halloween, two little boys and a little girl were hanging out near the bridge at midnight. They were confronted by the bunny man, cut open, mutilated, and murdered in a blind rage by him.
1: I think that the cut open and mutilated part would have murdered them in the beginning.
0: Yeah, just just a little bit.
1: Yeah, well, they already did.
0: (laughs) Yep. He then hung their bodies on the bridge next to the dead rabbits with notes attached to their feet that read, You'll never catch the bunny man. Another version states that the lunatics had escaped from the bus crash, scattered, and all but one was recovered. The escapee eluded police for days while they kept finding rabbit carcasses strewn in the area near the bridge and hanging from trees. They eventually caught up to him, found him covered in blood and wearing rabbit pelts. He tried to flee, but before they could catch him, the suspect was hit by an oncoming train <laughs> over the Colchester Road his spirit is said to haunt the location to this day, mostly appearing on Halloween at midnight. So that one goes in with the original, yeah. like most popular, but it's like, there's a different thing where it's like, he's just, he didn't go there for killing them. It's somebody murdered his family. He went fucking nuts. And then, yeah, you know, then so it's just started killing slightly people. slight deviation.
1: It's really funny, though. Every time it gets to the part where he gets hit by the train, I just have this cartoon that pops in my head. It's like, you'll never catch me, I'm the bunny man! And then he just steps back into the train tracks. <laughs> Gone. Oh my god. Yep. fucking explosion of blood. Oh, I can see that. It's gross. <laughs> what a gruesome cartoon my head creates.
0: One tale suggests that if you walk all the way down the tunnel around midnight, the bunny man will snatch you before you get a word out and hang you from the entrance of the bridge. Then you'll swing back and forth like a Halloween decoration left over after the spooky night itself. (laughs) Another story told in 2001 has a guide and six local students, no mention if they were in high school or college, had found parts of mutilated rabbits strewn around, heard noises, and they thought they saw figures moving in the woods. Frightened, they left the area. There are many stories told by young people about the Bunny Man. The internet is a giant breeding ground for the Bunny Man legend, where once it was spread by word of mouth... Except now the world learns of the scary being, where before it was just the locals of Northern Virginia and Lower Maryland.
1: Yeah, I mean, that shit spreads like wildfire.
0: hmm In Reston, Virginia, there used to be a dirt road leading off of Sunset Hills Road just before it intersected with Reston Avenue. The kids in town knew that it led to the Bunny Man's house. Supposedly, one Halloween night, he dressed up in a bunny costume, shot his wife and kids, then opened the door to trick-or-treaters all night with the corpses of his family still in the house. Jesus Christ. Wow. I mean, it's not a bad idea if you're a psychopath on Halloween. It's just like, it's just decorations, it's fine.
1: It's just very, very realistic (laughs) decorations. Don't mind the smell. (laughs) It's all part of the show.
0: Another tale has a guy in a bunny costume standing in the middle of the road at the bottom of a hill in Clifton. As cars come down the hill, he would throw an axe at the vehicle and somehow he always killed the person or persons inside.
1: (laughs) He must have fucking, like, super aim
0: But if you're still with me on this, there is just a little more of the Bunny Man lore. Some believe that the Bunny Man has died, but just because his physical body is gone doesn't mean he's done terrorizing the residents of Virginia. One witness talks about his own personal experiences with the Bunny Man bridge. He has been out there about a dozen times since it's about 15 minutes from his house. Most of the time, he and his friends hang around the bridge, waiting to see if anything would happen. Nothing does, but they feel as if someone or something is watching them. Even though the bridge is located about 25 miles from Washington, D.C., it is still in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) Only a few houses nestle within the woods that surround the bridge and railroad tracks. If you drive through the tunnel, only go one car at a time, as it is small. The last time he and his buddies went out there, they heard voices that came from the woods. Whispers that sounded as if they originated 20 feet from where the young man stood. Frightened, they bolted. But even though all of this may sound like a load of bullshit, urban legends have to come from somewhere, right? Definitely. First, although the tale is told in jurisdictions all around the D.C. area, the bulk of them take place in Fairfax County, Virginia. Second, any event that gains as much notoriety as this one must have been originally reported to the public. Third, the original event was probably criminal in nature. Yeah, most likely. It is kind of hard to narrow down specific crimes because the police archives are not for public view. So unless you have a specific name to search in the Court of Records, you're screwed. Yeah. So I moved on to news articles. Between the murders and killings extracted from papers between eighteen seventy-two through nineteen seventy-three, there were over five hundred and fifty recorded total. That was a bitch and a half.
1: Holy shit.
0: Excluding domestic and concentrating on multiple murders and those involving children shaved that list down to three that seemed like a close possibility, however unlikely. One of them, I think, may have served as an inspiration for one of the 54 versions. (laughs) The last assumption is based on the fact that the story has indeed developed over time. Okay. The first murder occurred in August of 1918 involving a woman by the name of Ava Roy. I will change some of the terminology in the article as the public was not as, I'm gonna say, properly spoken back then. Yeah. The news article I found from the Washington Post in 1918 reads as follows. Ava Roy slain at Burke, Virginia. Bloodhounds trail Lou Hall. Crime stirs all of county. Woodchoppers gather at Fairfax and sheriff's guard prisoner. Throngs threaten summary of vengeance of pretty village favorite who was slain as she bring home father's cows, attacked and killed body is found bound to a tree that's 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 the title of the article like that's the title in the subtext
1: oh my god
0: while the funeral of the 15 year old ava roy who was brutally attacked and murdered tuesday was being held at her home at burke station virginia yesterday Lou hall was being charged with the crime before a magistrate at the fairfax county courthouse and was held without bail he had been captured the evening before after a 10 mile chase by bloodhounds Woodcutters at a late hour last night were arriving at Fairfax, muttering threats of lynching and Sheriff J.R. Allison and Deputy Sheriffs Rezin farr and G.C. White with loaded guns were standing guard over the prisoner. Oh, shit. The murder is said to be one of the most gruesome in the annals of Fairfax County. Ava Roy, probably the most popular girl in the little village and a Sunday school teacher in the church, where her father oft times preached, had left her home Tuesday morning to bring in the cows. Her father is a prosperous farmer, having come from Minnesota in 1912, and purchased his farm. Ava was his only child. Throngs joined the hunt. Lou Hall, a laborer claiming woodcutting as his trade, lived with his wife and two children about a mile away from the Roy homestead. He was about 33 years old and is said by his neighbors to bear an unsavory reputation. A
1: unsavory reputation. Yes.
0: When Ava failed to return home at the custom hour of 2 p.m. Tuesday, searching parties were organized. Work in all the lumber camps, which is the chief industry of Burke Station, ceased and all joined the hunt for the village favorite. That was quick.
1: That was really quick. Like, oh, Find not- the pretty one! She's ones. not home at two. There must be something oh wrong. Oh my god. Find her now!
0: <laughs> the body of the girl was found 24 hours later, bruised and blood covered, tied to a tree about half a mile from Hall's home.
1: Hmm. Why-, why would yeah. it be that close? Like-
0: uh, no, do no, We're getting to it. Are we? The body had been dragged through the open fields into the woods about 200 yards away and blood marked the trail, trailed by the hounds. Sheriff Allison called out bloodhounds, which took up the scent, and headed for Camp Humphreys about 10 miles away. At a contic at the outskirts of the camp, amid a crowd of laborers, stood Hall, and the hounds pounced upon him. Hall was immediately arrested and taken to the Fairfax County Jail. At yesterday's hearing before Magistrate Charles Patton Henry, who held Hall for the action by the grand jury, which is to meet in September, the prisoner told a story which is said to have failed to bear up under cross-examination. According to Hall, he was home when the alleged assault upon the girl, which preceded the murder, is said to have taken place. According to Peter Roy, the father, however, he immediately ran over to Hall's house when he found out the girl had disappeared. Why? Wow, that's. I this mean, is starting to. I sound mean, kind if of it's a neighbor, it's, 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 it could be one of two things. It could be either that, like he considered him a friend and he went over, like, "Holy shit, my daughter's missing, help me," or it could be that I know that motherfucker did it. Yeah. So anyway, he went to Hall's house when his daughter disappeared, but no one was there. According to the story told by Mrs. Hall, her husband had ordered her early in the morning to take the children to her father, who lives about three miles away. She considered this unusual, as for years he had forbidden her to communicate with her father. His explanation was that he had secured a position as a woodcutter at Camp Humphreys and that he was going to leave that afternoon. But that still doesn't... No. That still doesn't explain why, after years of him going, no, you're not allowed to talk to your dad, then all of a sudden, take the kids to your father. Yeah. So, the testimony at the hearing. Ava Roy's father testified that Hall knew that Ava was in the habit of bringing the cows home, and that he had often seen her at the accustomed place at the spring, where her father's ten cows were always pastured. It was further testified by several witnesses that Hall passed the spot where the blood was first found sometime past noon. The pasture is an unfrequented spot, and it is said that whoever committed the crime was in no danger of being observed. The ground showed signs of a struggle. Following the attack, the girl was dragged into the woods, choked, and beaten. The body was then tied to the tree with pieces of her clothes, which had been torn off her body during the struggle. When found, she had partly slipped through her bonds. Her body half lay upon the ground, but an apron tied about her around her throat to the tree held her in a sitting posture. The case continued in another article as follows Hall alibi grows in Ava Roy case Each day sees a falling apart of the chain of circumstantial evidence the commonwealth has been trying to draw about Lou Hall accused of the murder of in this article states as a 14-year-old but 15-year-old Ava Roy near Burke station Fairfax County the girl was assaulted and strangled to death on Tuesday of last week. Hall, who had up to that time made his home near the scene of the crime, was missing when the body was found just a week ago today. Bloodhounds made a trail to his home, and he was arrested at a kontic. The Commonwealth held that Hall did not have a job in view when he hurriedly left his home Tuesday afternoon just after the killing, Although he had told Walter Wood earlier in the day, I don't guess I'll see you again for some time. I've got a job driving a team for Joe Magner down at Acontic. It has been contended that Magner had not employed Hall, but he did not get work at Contic until subsequent to the killing. Magner himself today broke down the claim of the Commonwealth by stating positively that he hired Hall on Sunday prior to the killing on Tuesday. Magner has 14 teams doing government work between Acontic and Camp Humphreys. Hall was engaged as a driver for one of them. It was learned today that witnesses other than Fred Davis, a grocer at Barker's Crossing, will testify that they saw Hall in Davis' store at 1230 o'clock on Tuesday. They reported that his four-year-old son was with him, that Hall purchased the lad some cake, and later left carrying the boy with him. This corroborates Hall's statement that he took his wife and younger child to the home of James Edward Taylor, his wife's father, and carried his older child with him. He was with his son until late in the afternoon when he reached Ducontic, he claims. We also account for what Hall did from the time he left Barker's Crossing with his four-year-old son until he reached Ducontic. Attorney Walter Oliver, his counsel, said today, That's an important phase of the case, but we do not care to divulge this information. It will put an entirely new coloring on the case when it is known. Sheriff J.R. Allison of Fairfax County, Morgan Bradford, head of the Bradford's detective service in Washington, and a corps of assistants today, began a thorough quiz of every man and boy, both white and black, in the community. To start Dragnet, every man and boy residing within a radius of five miles of the scene of the crime will be examined. They will be asked to give a detailed account of their movements on the day of the killing. They will be forced to produce corroborative evidence if their own statements are conflicting. If the crime was committed by a black person, the officials hold the belief that the black person was acquainted with the fact that Averroy was accustomed to frequent the locality where the killing took place. They say that in the case of a black person, such a crime is also premeditated and not committed on impulse of the moment. What the fuck? Yeah, this is fucked up. In such cases, black people are seldom ever known to flee. They always believe they will get away with it without paying the penalty. There are only a few black people residing in the vicinity of the crime. In fact, that section of Fairfax County is sparsely settled. What the fuck? Yep. Jesus Christ. Yep. That's why I said I was changing some words.
1: Yeah, no, I get that.
0: I hate that whole paragraph. It infuriates me. Yep. But it's from 1918, so. Yep. Sorry. <sighs> In spite of the statements by members of Averoy's family, to the effect that the girl's fingernails were very short, Sheriff Allison and Detective Bradford still hold to the opinion that there was sufficient of the nail there to have scratched some of the skin from her assailant's face, hands, or neck. Ugh. May exhume the body. Exhumation of the body appeared probable today. The authorities may remove the fingernails and have them analyzed and the stomach analyzed to determine whether or not Averroy ate her lunch on the morning of the killing. When Lou Hall reached his home at noon Tuesday it is claimed that he said he was not hungry and ate but a little. When the searching party found the body of Ava Roy tied to a tree near the spring last week they found the paper in which her lunch had been wrapped and the bottle in which she had some coffee was empty showing that she had eaten her lunch before she was killed or that her assailant had killed her and then eaten the lunch. <laughs> so I mean like that could i guess kind of if they find the food that she was supposed to have taken for lunch in her stomach. Yeah. That means that she ate it. But if for some reason they find remnants on Lou Hall that right. he ate the lunch that she was supposed to have eaten... They will put he... him there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is actually kind of really precise detective work for that era.
1: Right? Like, that's an that's interesting way to go about that. Yeah.
0: Since eight days have passed since the commission of the crime, the authorities doubt they will be able to get much satisfaction from the examination of scars and bruises on other possible suspects. The girl weighed about 130 pounds, her father, Pete Roy, told me, and she was very strong. Sheriff Allison said she must have put up a stiff fight and necessarily hit or scratched her assailant. By this time, such bruises had time to heal and will be hard to distinguish. Not wrong. Yeah. Averoy's case went unsolved, even though Lou Hall had been tried twice for her murders, but he was eventually dismissed of all charges. Bullshit. Averoy is buried in Lee Chapel Cemetery now. And just to this day, like, nobody knows who actually killed her. Do I think it's Lou? Probably.
1: It sounds like it was probably him, but they didn't have enough evidence to actually tie him to it. Yeah, and I no, that. that's why
0: they said it was circumstantial. So yeah. that makes sense. The second case comes from an article I found from March 1927 in regard to the murders of Minnie, Loretta, and Catherine Ridgway. The available newspapers record many murders, but few shocked Fairfax like the ferocious and senseless attack on Mrs. Minnie Ridgway and her two young daughters. Mrs. Ridgway lived with her husband and three children on Telegraph Road in Alexandria. Sometime in the morning of March 4th, 1927, a man later identified as Louis Borsick called at the home on the pretext of seeing Mr. Ridgway. Upon finding that he was not at home, Borsig attacked and beat Minnie Ridgway into an unconsciousness and then likewise bludgeoned her daughters, Loretta, Seven, and Catherine, Five. He then stole money from the home and fled. The crime was discovered by a neighbor who heard moans coming from inside the house. All three victims were taken to Alexandria Hospital, where Loretta later died. Catherine Ridgway lived another eight days before succumbing to her injuries. Minnie recovered and was able to identify the assailant, who was known to the Ridgeways. Borzig was arrested at his home and transferred to the jail in Winchester for his safety. Louis Borzig was executed for the murders of Loretta and Catherine Ridgway on July 7th, 1927, three months after this horrific crime. Wow,
1: that one's fucking brutal.
0: Mm-hmm. The third and final murder I found via casetext.com, which is a website where it shows you actual court cases, like the dictation of it. Oh, shit. I also found... Stories about this in articles of Washington Post and Francis Hollibur's obituary on findagrave.com in regard to the murder of Francis and June Hollibur in February of 1949. And it reads as follows. It would be hard to imagine a more disturbing event for a growing community like Fairfax than the gruesome murders of 37 year old Francis Hollibur and her eight month old daughter, June on Thursday, February 24th, 1949, Mrs. Hollibur and her daughter drove to Fairfax County in the company of her estranged husband, Charles. All were residents of the District of Columbia. Charles Hollaber later told police that they had come to see the new lodge at a nudist colony to which Mr. Hollaber belonged. Yeah. (laughs) Upon leaving the lodge, the car became mired in some mud. The couple quarreled, and Mrs. Hollaber took the child and walked away from her husband and never returned. Charles Hollaber spent the night in the car and got a ride back to Washington the next day. He returned with his brother-in-law and a friend to retrieve the car. Still finding no evidence of his family, the police were finally notified. An intensive search of the area was organized involving Fairfax County Police, Washington Detectives, and Boy Scouts. About 5 p.m., just as the searchers were about to give up for the night, one of the detectives noted that the ground on which they were standing was very soft. Both mother and daughter were found in a shallow grave next to the lodge and less than 200 yards from where Charles Holliber's car had been stuck. Francis Hollibur had been beaten and then shot once in the head and once in the heart. The baby girl had been buried alive.
1: Oh my fucking god.
0: Yep. The local community was shocked and horrified by the cold, brutal character of the crime, especially when the investigation identified Charles Hollibur as the prime suspect. Hollibur later confessed to the investigators that he had planned the murder for three weeks and had not intended to report the disappearance of his wife, but changed his plan when the car got caught in the mud. The case came to trial on January 16th, 1950. After hearing four days of testimony, the jury returned a verdict of guilty, and Holliber was sentenced to die in the electric chair. Holliber's attorney, T. Brooke Howard, filed an appeal alleging that the jury failed to give proper consideration to the plea of insanity, and that the court made errors in its instruction to the jury.
1: Uh, no. He Mm. just needs to be fucking.
0: defendant was convicted of the murder of his wife and his punishment was fixed at death in support of his defense of insanity four expert witnesses who had examined the defendant testified that in their opinion defendant was insane and members of his family testified that he had always been abnormal and his behavior evidenced insanity in rebuttal the commonwealth called three qualified psychiatrists who testified that in their opinion the defendant was sane the issue of insanity was sharply in dispute and distinctly presented a question for determination by the jury on that issue. The jury should not have been influenced in any manner by the words and conduct of the trial judge directly or indirectly explicitly or by innuendo. Yeah, that's a thing. Yeah. If you are a judge and you have a bias, you're not allowed to express that in court. Right. And the jury is not allowed to agree with that bias publicly right i'm gonna say privately you do it all you want but to the court itself you can't let that determine yeah. a case on february 25th 1949 the wife of the defendant was reported as missing to the missing persons bureau of the metropolitan police department in washington dc on the next day Holliber, at the request of the police came to a police station in washington while there he received a telephone call from an attorney After his telephone conversation, he refused to answer any questions about his wife until his attorney arrived. The attorney, upon his arrival, first refused to allow the defendant to answer any questions about his wife. However, after a short conference, the attorney informed the police that Holliber would cooperate with them in every respect. Holliber then told the police that he borrowed his sister's car on February 25, 1949, and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon of that day, took his wife for a drive. He told her that he desired to show her a place in Virginia where he had been visiting. He and his wife, with their eight-month-old baby, drove to Green Forest, an abandoned nudist colony in Fairfax County, Virginia. He said that upon their arrival, they had a dispute and she ran away from him, taking the baby, and he had not seen or heard of either of them since. At the request of the police, Hollaber and several police officers drove to Green Forest, and Hollaber then showed them the spot where he said he had last seen his wife. He stated that his car had gotten stuck in the mud, that he and his wife got into an argument about their domestic relations, and that she jumped out of the car and ran up the road with their baby in her arms. He followed her about a hundred feet and then returned to the automobile. The automobile was mired so deep in the mud he could not move it, so he spent the night in the car and returned to Washington the following day.
1: He didn't even bother to go look for her. Even if that's yeah. the case, he's
0: still a dick. Yeah. On Sunday, February 27, 1949, members of the Washington Police Force, accompanied by two officers of the Fairfax County Police Department and a group of Boy Scouts, went to Green Forest. They searched the grounds in an area around the abandoned nudist colony. Late in the afternoon, they discovered the bodies of the defendant's wife and infant child buried in a shallow grave about 27 feet from a building located on the premises. Mrs. Holliber's underpants were found, dropped around her ankles, and her ring and jewelry had been removed from her body. She had been shot in the head and through the heart, and the child apparently had been buried alive and died of suffocation.
1: That's so fucking awful. About
0: one o'clock in the morning on february twenty eighth, nineteen forty nine, police officers from Fairfax County interviewed Holliber at a police station in Washington where he was being detained for further questioning. At first he was in doubt as to whether the bodies had been found, but then it was explained how and where they had been found as well as the pick and shovel which had been used to dig the grave. He voluntarily confessed the circumstances of the crime and commended the police on doing a good job. Wow. Oh my god. Smug motherfucker. (laughs) He said that on the trip with his wife from Washington to Fairfax County, Mrs. Holaber requested him to stop the car for her to get out to urinate. It then occurred to him that this afforded him a good reason and method to get her out of the car and then kill her. He told the officers he had thought he had committed the perfect crime. You're returned. Well wow. therefore, accompanied the police to his mother's home in Washington, where he resided. He there produced the gun he had used to kill his wife, the ring, wristwatch, and other jewelry she wore at the time of her death. The group then returned to police headquarters in Washington, and he made a voluntary statement which was put in writing. The statement was read to him, received his approval, and was signed by him. Omitting such portion as related to the death of the child, the confession reads as follows... On Wednesday night, february twenty third, nineteen forty nine, about nine thirty PM. I was visiting at my wife's home at nine thirty one New York Avenue, Northwest, Washington, DC, at which time I decided to do away with my wife. The reason that I decided to do away with her was that she failed to live up to her part of the agreement about our marriage. Wow oh That's God. an extreme. How about just divorce her? Right. The following day, Thursday, February 24th, 1949, at about noon, I asked my sister if I could borrow her car to take my wife and child for a ride. After my sister agreed to let me have her car, I then took a shovel and mattock from the basement and put them in the trunk of the car. I also put my pistol in the pocket of my leather jacket. I then picked up my wife and child up at her house at about 1.45 p.m. and drove out into Virginia." I drove my wife and child out to Green Forest as I knew that area and that was the place I decided to dispose of them at. We arrived at this place about 2.45pm. About 6 or 7 minutes after we arrived at Green Forest, my wife got out of the car to urinate and had her back toward me and I shot her in the back of the head. After I shot she fell over to her right side and the only thing she said was Charlie and she kept on breathing and after about 2 minutes I shot her again in the region of her heart. After I shot her in the region of her heart, blood came from her mouth and nose, and she apparently died in about two minutes. I then began digging a trench to bury my wife in, which had taken me about an hour. I then dragged my wife's body over to the trench and placed her in it. After I finished covering my wife in the trench, it was about 5.45pm, and I started back to Washington. On the way out of the driveway, I became stuck, and I attempted to dig the car free with a shovel and mattock, but was unsuccessful i stayed in the car that night and the following morning i hid the shovel and mattock in the bushes opposite the driveway and hitchhiked to falls church virginia and there i caught a bus and returned to my home my brother-in-law and i returned that same day and got the car further evidence with respect to the death of the child obtained from conversations with Holliber, was substantially as follows Holliber said that after he killed his wife it took him about two hours to dig a shallow grave because the ground was hard during that period, his baby, in the back seat of his car, was crying part of the time and asleep the other part, that after placing his wife in the grave, he put the baby on the mother's breast, took his pistol, tried to fire at the baby, but the gun did not discharge, and he then buried the baby and the mother, covering them with about six inches of dirt. When he heard the baby crying, he pressed down the earth on the grave. When asked why he didn't strike the baby with a shovel and kill it, he replied, Oh no, I wouldn't do that.
1: No. Because what you've done isn't already atrocious. Yeah. Fucking no.
0: Fucking piece of shit. It appeared from the evidence that the defendant's wife had been a waitress, and the defendant said he undertook to educate her to become a white-collar worker. During their association, she became pregnant by him, and he was persuaded to marry her to give the child a name upon the condition that he would support the child, but would not live with her. Hereafter, paid $5 a week towards a child support and continued to live with his family. Mrs. Hollibur retained her job and lived with her family. Upon complaint of his wife, he was later ordered by the Juvenile and Domestic Relations Court in Washington, D.C. to increase his payments for the child to $6 a week. This he did, obtaining part of the money from his family because he was unable to keep himself steadily employed. However, Hollibur continued to see his wife and have sexual relations with her, and about three weeks before the commission of the crime, he learned that his wife was pregnant again. His wife, under the circumstances, insisted that she would move into the home of Holabur's mother and live with him. He thought this was a breach of his agreement with his wife, became very much upset at the prospect which confronted him, and gave this as his reason for desiring to be rid of his wife and child. He said he knew that he had committed a grave wrong, and he hoped he would be given life imprisonment instead of death. Nope.
1: No, you deserve fucking death, my dude. That is awful. <laughs>
0: The defendant introduced the testimony of his mother, brother, and sister to show that he had been of unsound mind since his childhood. They said that he had been a peculiar youth, would not associate with people, never had any friends, couldn't keep a job, dressed in an odd manner, had peculiar eating habits, and would stay in his room for two days without coming out for food. So a typical teenager.
1: Yeah, that's what it sounds
0: like. His sister said he lived in a dream world and that his unhappy state of mind gradually got worse. She heard him say that there was a black cloud hanging over his head. He didn't use the telephone and would not answer calls if he could avoid it. He left high school without cause before he finished, and seemed to have no control over the direction his impulses led him. The mother of the defendant said that, recognizing the fact he was not well, she had vainly tried to get him to see a doctor time and time again, that he would ride around on cars for hours without any purpose, that he would sit in the park because he felt he just had to, and that during the three-week period before the crime, he was very blue and wanted to be left alone. After the crime, he told her that when his wife told him she was pregnant again and was going to raise her children in his mother's house, he just had to do it. That is, commit the crime. That is not a fucking reason, dude. Nope. Don't go off and fucking kill her.
1: Nope. Just, hey, bitch, not my problem, (laughs) and fucking leave. Or something like that. There are many different ways that you can deal with that situation, albeit still shitty, That don't involve killing her or the baby.
0: It further appeared that the defendant had attempted to commit suicide when he was 16 years of age and only escaped by accidental happening. In 1942, upon a physical examination for induction into the armed services, he was rejected and disqualified for military service by reason of defective vision and pre-psychotic personality.
1: See? They can see it.
0: In support of the defense of his insanity, four witnesses, a psychologist, a medical doctor, and two psychiatrists testified. Each of these witnesses examined the defendant, obtained from him his story of the crime, and consulted with members of his family as to his life's history. Dr. Daniel Gabriel, a medical doctor connected for a period of time in 1949 with the Southwestern State Hospital at Marion, Virginia, when Hollaber was committed for observation as to his mental condition, testified that the defendant's behavior was not normal, that he showed no remorse or regret whatever for his acts, but grinned most of the time, and that in his opinion he was not sane. He thought that a patient with of abnormal tendencies could, by suffering from a disappointment or frustration, become insane. Dr. Margaret Ives, a psychologist connected with established hospitals, a teacher of psychology at George Washington University, and an author of books on that subject, said that the defendant was definitely a schizophrenic of the paranoid type, a more modern term for dementia praecox. She explained that schizophrenia meant a split mind, one part of the mind thinking one line and the other part thinking a different line. She was of the opinion that he was insane and that his mind was incapable of functioning normally. She thought that with his type of insanity, he was capable of planning and committing a murder. Dr. Frank S. Caprio, a psychiatrist since 1935, engaged in private practice and connected with several government hospitals and the author of several books on the subject of psychiatry, examined the defendant on eight occasions. He also interviewed members of Hollaber's family to discover any discrepancy in the statements made by the accused. He was of opinion that Hollaber was of unsound mind prior to the commission of the crime at the time of the commission and was still insane at the time of the trial. His diagnosis was that Hollibeir was suffering from schizophrenia of a paranoid type, which made him not responsible for his actions.
1: See, that's the kind of thing that pisses me off. The whole not responsible for his actions because he made the choice to do it. He yeah. premeditated everything. And yes. He was control, like in control of his fucking actions. Hmm.
0: Mm. Yeah. See, it would be different if they had ruled it a impulse. Yeah. That sounds more in line with someone that has paranoid schizophrenia yeah. versus somebody who is like, oh no, I had been planning this for a while. I'm so- No.
1: No, that is pre-fucking meditated.
0: Dr. Benjamin Carpman, the next witness, qualified as an expert psychiatrist with 30 years experience. He is the author of numerous books and articles on criminal psychiatry and has been a professor at Harvard Medical School for 20 years, teaching postgraduate work in the above subject. He examined the defendant on a number of occasions and was of the definite opinion that he was of unsound mind both at the time of the commission of the offense and at the time of the trial. He thought the frustration which the defendant encountered because of the problems presented by his wife created in his mind the idea that he had to get rid of her, and there was nothing he thought about except the accomplishment of the act. In rebuttal, the Commonwealth called three qualified psychiatrists as witnesses. Dr. F.S. Chance, who was attached to the Southwestern State Hospital in Marion, Virginia, during the period when the defendant was committed there for observation as to his mental condition, said that it was very difficult to diagnose the condition of Holliber. He thought he had schizoid personality, which was very close to the line which separates the sane from the insane, that he showed no emotional regret in connection with the crime, and acted as a mechanical man. He admitted that there was a possibility the crime could have been brought on by an impulse over which the defendant had no control. He was of the opinion, however, that the defendant met the qualifications of sanity during the time he knew him and was sane at the time of the trial. Dr. Joseph R. Blalock, superintendent of the Southwestern State Hospital, examined the defendant upon his arrival and on at least two other occasions. He classified the defendant as an egocentric with psychopathic personality, that is, with malgested personality. He was of opinion that Holliber was sane at the time of the commission of the offense and sane when he saw him shortly prior to the trial. Dr. Greenville L. Jones, superintendent of the Eastern State Hospital in Williamsburg, Virginia, testified that he examined the defendant on December 9, 1949, about one month before the trial and ten months after the crime. He had read the record of Southwestern State Hospital relative to him. As a result of his personal conferences, the above-mentioned record, and the circumstances surrounding the crime, he came to the conclusion that the defendant was sane and competent, although psychopathic. He admitted that there was evidence that defendant had broken with reality, which might have placed him over the line into a state of insanity. When asked if Holliber had been motivated by an impulse over which he had no control, he replied, I don't know that I can answer that. I don't think that the impulse was one over which he had no control. I think it was an impulse that he chose not to control. I can only say what I think, and I don't think so, but I couldn't be positive about it. No. <laughs> that just sounds like when I'm having a tough time making a decision and I'm arguing with myself, it's like, yes, no, no, yes, no. I mean, he like... could have
1: been crazy. <laughs> he, was, he was probably crazy, but like, maybe he had control over it. He could have said no.
0: Yeah. <laughs> The Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals eventually overturned the conviction and ordered a new trial. Charles Francis Holliber was recommitted to the Western State Mental Hospital at Marion, Virginia, where he was judged to be insane. He spent the next eighteen years in mental hospitals. In nineteen sixty eight, he was released from the Southwestern State Hospital, went to live with relatives, and died in two thousand three in West Virginia. Francis was pregnant with her second child at the time of her death, and she was buried with June in her arms. Charles is probably buried in an unmarked space between his parents' graves and that of his wife and child. It's interesting to note that this was the first time since the Ridgeway murder trial of 1927 in which Fairfax County jury invoked the death penalty.
1: They should've. They really fucking should've though. They like... tried,
0: but they were overruled because...
1: Insanity. Fucking bullshit, dude.
0: <sighs> After scrutinizing the three preceding events, I concluded that none are likely candidates for the Bunny Man. Charles Holliber was caught and incarcerated, Louis Borzig was caught and summarily executed, and the murder of Ava Roy, even though it has many of the elements that a legend could build upon, is simply too old. The only one that ties to any of the versions of the story as stated before was that in the case of Charles Holliber, he murdered his wife and child and was sent to a mental institution. He didn't escape and go on a killing spree! But what better bit of truth to pull from, to compare to, than the supposed man that killed his family on Easter and later escaped from the loony bin?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is the one that draws the most uh, parallels to the, the legend itself. But still.
0: The previously cited Forbes version of the story features 32 victims and has a pronounced supernatural element. This contrasts sharply with the versions of the tale I collected from the 1980s, which generally involved only one to three victims usually children. More importantly, the earliest versions dating to the 1970s did not mention any deaths at all. These earliest versions recounts acts of vandalism, usually against secluded residential construction sites, or couples parked at secluded Lover's Lane-type locations being accosted slash threatened by a strange individual dressed in a white bunny costume. More research was clearly needed! <laughs> On November 11, 2000, the Washington Post ran an article highlighting an interesting collection called the Maryland Folklore Archive. From the 1950s through 1990, students at three Maryland universities collected, researched, and transcribed numerous local legends. In 1973, a student named Patricia Johnson submitted a paper titled The Bunny Man. This paper was compiled as part coursework for a class entitled Introduction to Folklore, English 460. She interviewed 33 students from Prince George's County, Maryland, ages 15 to 18. Miss Johnson relates that the tale met all the qualifications of an urban belief tale. Specifically, it takes place in an urban setting, existed prior to her project, and had appeared in print as truth. She goes on to state, included in this collection is an article from the Washington Post which verifies the story as truth. But the page containing the reference article just happened to be missing from the original paper! Which, of course, is insanely frustrating and leading me to believe that it does not exist. The
1: fucking course.
0: (laughs) Johnson's informants told 54 variations of the story. A rough tally revealed the following. 14 different geographic locations were mentioned. 18 involved the bunny man chasing or frightening people, usually children with a hatchet or an axe. 14 tell of attacks on cars. 9 claim he attacked a couple in a parked car. Five accuse him of vandalism on homes or buildings, and only three mention murder. Based on the widespread geographic locations and the significant variation represented, Johnson concluded that the bunny man was a myth. No shit. <laughs> oh, really? Now, Miss Johnson had finally noted that she heard the tale for the first time around Halloween in 1970. So I did more digging. You know, as many times as I say it in regards to my research, I think this is the perfect time to reference getting lost down the rabbit hole. (laughs) Because a man in a white (laughs) bunny (laughs) suit. I'll show myself out. (laughs) I swear I had so many tabs open on my computer researching this, I actually thought it was going to crash. Yeah, no, I wouldn't be fucking surprised. Like...
1: There are so many different directions with this thing. It's, oh my god, yeah.
0: Anyway, but especially the get off my lawn yeah. guy. I'm <laughs> back to the post. So in October of 1970, the Washington Post printed an article titled Man in Bunny Suit Sought in Fairfax. And I was like, holy shit, this really was a psychotic bunny man running around Fairfax and scaring the hell out of people.
1: Yeah, all right.
0: So the article read, Fairfax County police said yesterday they are looking for a man who likes to wear white bunny rabbit costume and throws hatchets through car windows. (laughs) Honest. What the fuck? Air Force Academy cadet Robert Bennett told police that shortly after midnight last Sunday, he and his fiance were sitting in a car in the 5400 block of Guinea Road when a man, dressed in a white suit with long bunny ears, ran from the nearby bushes and shouted, You're on private property and I have your tag number! <laughs> the first-year cadet then told the police that the rabbit threw a wooden-handled hatchet through the right front car window. As soon as he threw the hatchet, the rabbit skipped off into the night. <laughs> <laughs> <He> said <laughs> Bennett and his fiance were not injured.
1: I bet you he hopped. <laughs>
0: What I was actually picturing right. in my mind is like, get out of here, bitches! Smashes the hatchet and then he's just like, bop, 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 down the road. <laughs> what the fuck? Police say they have the hatchet, but no other clues in this case. <laughs> they, kept the hatchet. they say Bennett was visiting an uncle who lives across the street from the spot where the car was parked. The cadet was in the area to attend last week's Air Force-Navy football game. Mind you, the police gave the couple back the hatchet after they closed the case and now have it displayed on a plaque in their home alongside a clipping of this article. Oh, I would totally do that, too.
1: Yeah, I would, too. You want to hear this crazy shit that happened to me once? Like, look, I got proof. (laughs) Come look at this.
0: Come look at this. This is great.
1: (laughs) Fucking psychopaths! Why didn't you beat the shit out of him? I didn't know what the fuck he was on. could have been meth. (laughs) He hopped away!
0: (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) Then two weeks later, the post came out with another one, and it read, The Rabbit Reappears. Oh no. A man wearing a furry rabbit suit with long ears appeared, again, on Guinea Road in Fairfax County Thursday night, police reported. This time wielding an axe and chopping away at a roof support on a new house. (laughs) The fuck? Less than two weeks ago, a man wearing what was described as a rabbit suit accused two persons in a parked car of trespassing and heaved a hatchet through a closed window of the car at 5400 Guinea Road. They were not hurt. (laughs) Thursday night's rabbit, wearing a suit described as gray, black, and white, was spotted a block away at 5307 Guinea Road. Paul Phillips, a private security guard for a construction company, said he saw the rabbit standing on the front porch of a new but unoccupied house.
1: So you're telling me that this guy has multiple rabbit suits? Because this one's gray, black, and white. And the first one was just straight up white. So he either has multiple suits or this is like a group of fucking people You are just trying to scare people into not doing shit they don't want to do.
0: Mm -hmm. Like, get off
1: my fucking lawn and this house sucks. Get this out of here.
0: Mm -hmm. I want my meadow back. (laughs) I started talking to him, Philip said, and that's when he started chopping. (laughs) Oh. All you people trespass around here, Philip said. The rabbit told him as he whacked eight gashes in the pole. Well, it's definitely the
1: same person.
0: (laughs) If you don't get out of here, I'm going to bust you on the head. Phillips said he walked back to his car to get his handgun, but the rabbit, carrying a long handled axe, ran off into the woods. <laughs> the security guard said the man was about five to eight feet, 160 pounds, and appeared to be in his early 20s. Well, what I'm... is it? Because that's a hell of a difference <laughs> between a big five window. and eight
1: feet. Five and eight feet. I'm 5'3,
0: so I know how short my ass is, all right? Like it, it was
1: an adult. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> what the what fuck? It? it was probably. An I mean, adult. I don't know.
0: I've known a kid that was thirteen that was six foot three. Oh, so <laughs>
1: appeared to be in his early twenties. Could have been a teenager. Yeah.
0: As stated earlier, fourteen of Miss Johnson's tales mention a couple in a parked car being attacked, but nine of these specifically mention a hatchet being thrown into the car. Of the five mentioning vandalism, two describe columns being chopped. The story told by a seventeen-year-old G. Taylor was particularly revealing. She related, I think it was last year or maybe before that. I came home from school. I was listening to the news. I had just gotten in, and I heard there was a man and a woman sitting in a car. It could have been teenagers, but they were just parked and all. And all of a sudden, they looked up, and there was this bunny. You know, this giant bunny just ran out of the woods. You know, from behind the trees and all. (laughs) Jesus, woman. (laughs) And he ran in front of the car. Christ, I could put on my valley girl. No, don't do it,
1: please, don't. (laughs) I'll die right here on the podcast. And he like ran in front of the car.
0: And he had a hatchet, and he threw it through the car and just turned around and went back away. They were just shocked. They sat there and watched. Then an old man came out of the house and warned them to get off his property, you know. <laughs> get off my lawn.
1: Here they they tried again.
0: to explain it and everything, but he just wouldn't listen. And then they took it to the police afterwards. And the police, you know, went back and all and asked him if he had seen anything, and nobody had seen it. Until a couple days later, then a lot of people were saying that they had seen the bunny man. And then after that, the police tried to investigate, but they couldn't get anything. And then they found these places that sell costumes and all.
1: <laughs> oh, Bitch, you say it all
0: one more time. <laughs> and they found that it hadn't been there, but three people had bought costumes. Then they... Oh, Jesus Christ. Then they, you know, lo- long put... Oh, my God. Long put theirs away and brought them back. What the fuck kind of a sentence is that? <laughs> then they, then they, you know. Long put theirs away and brought them back, and all, and it wasn't them. What?
1: I think she's having a stroke.
0: Do you smell toast, sweetie? Oh my oh, God! No. And nobody ever found out about the bunny man. It just went on for a couple of weeks, then it died out. That is the only sentence that made sense. To- You're not wrong. (gasps) Oh, that hurt my brain, reading that. Oh, my God. I think it'll be okay. Miss Taylor's recollections are important for a number of reasons. First, she identifies the television news as her source of information. Second, she accurately relates the hatchet thrown into the occupied car, the teenage couple, the accusation of trespassing, and police involvement. Third, she states that it went on for a couple of weeks, then stopped. Lastly, she identifies the time frame to within six months. The October 22nd news story is clearly the origin of the tale she told. Moreover, the story had mutated noticeably in 22 years. Many of Johnson's 53 other versions also contain recognizable elements of the October 1970 incidents. Newspaper accounts and oral reports can be revealing, but neither can be trusted to be completely accurate. It was time to look for more trustworthy records. I
1: mean, other than the Valley Girl? That has all the other information.
0: Oh my god,
1: that was painful. That really was painful. And he then like hopped
0: away because the cops don't know anything. (laughs) I feel like going back and reading that all in a valley girl voice. Please don't. I
1: will seriously just straight up die.
0: (laughs) Fuck. The investigation report confirms the basics of the event as told in the October thirty first post article. At 10.30 p.m. October 29, 1970, six officers responded to 5307 Guinea Road for a subject dressed as a rabbit with an axe. The officers found no rabbit, and the case was turned over to Investigator W.L. Johnson of the Criminal Investigation Bureau.
1: It's a lot of Johnsons here.
0: Johnson began with a visit to the construction offices of Kings Park West subdivision on October 31st. He found no rabbit, but he did receive a call shortly after his visit from someone who worked at Kings Park West. The caller claimed to have just received a telephone call from someone identifying himself as the Axeman. The Axeman allegedly said, quote, Mr. Name Redacted, you have been messing up my property by dumping tree stumps, limbs and brush and other things on my property, End quote. The Axeman further stated that you can make everything right by meeting me tonight and talking about the situation. How? No fucking thank you, sir.
1: I mean, my question is will you be wearing the rabbit suit?
0: <laughs> I don't know, but I will not be having a nighttime meeting with someone that obviously has a hardcore grudge and calls himself the Axeman. I'm, I'm... all set. Yeah. <laughs> the rep from Kings Park West stated that the caller sounded to be a white male in his late teens or early 20s. The police set up a stakeout, but the Axeman never materialized. Who would have thought? On November 4th, Johnson received a call from a resident of the area who informed him that her son claimed to know the identity of the Bunny Man. She stated that some of the neighborhood children who have seen or been with the Bunny Man described him as an older teenager. Johnson interviewed the son, age 8, and eventually learned that he had not actually met the Bunny Man, but had only heard of the Bunny Man at school from the rest of the children talking about him. No
1: fucking way. Interviews
0: with other children in the neighborhood had similar results. On March 14th, 1971, Johnson wrote the following summary. After a very extensive investigation into this and all other cases of the same nature, it is still unsubstantiated as to whether or not there really is a white rabbit. The only people who have seen the so-called white rabbit have been children of rather young ages and the complainant in this case. Upon interviewing everyone in this case that may have had any knowledge of any incidents concerning a white rabbit that has been no significant information uncovered that would lead to the identity of the person or persons that were passing as a white rabbit, this case will be marked as inactive.
1: (laughs) Can't find the fucking meth head. Guess we gotta close
0: the case. This sounds like they're trying to investigate the claims of Alice. I'm sorry, just like everything is like, if there's anybody that knows of this mysterious white rabbit, (laughs) it's like Jesus.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Also, he had a different color costume in one of them. He wasn't just the white rabbit.
0: Well, there's also stories of him being in fucking rabbit pelts. I mean, like, these are from the news articles, but... That's true. I don't know, maybe Maybe. maybe the, like, you know, the gray and and black could have been like rabbit pelts that That's, he was, I was hanging just, over the white suit i was just thinking yeah. that. <laughs> it was just patches of different
1: colors from dead rabbits jesus oh. christ Ew.
0: so who is the bunny man we may never learn their true identity if there is one to be found but there are few clues contained in the foregoing sources on october 18th the bunny man accused robert bennett of trespassing On October 29th, the Bunny Man told security guard Paul Phillips that you trespass all around here, and on November 4th, the self-styled Axeman accused the unnamed representative of Kings Park West subdivision of dumping debris on his property. If we assume that all three incidents involved the same individual, then it appears that this young man was disturbed by the development of the area.
1: Sounds like an old man yelling, (laughs) get off my lawn.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Said development was extensive in 1970 also. Until the Second World War, Fairfax County was a rural farming community. The buildup of federal employment in the region fueled intensive residential development in the closer suburbs of Arlington and Fairfax counties. The 1950s saw tract housing being built in Springfield, McLean, Annandale, and Fairfax. The somewhat modest developments of the early 1960s eventually gave rise to near town-sized projects like Ruston and Burke Center. Kings Park West is a subdivision of over 1,500 homes and was one of several such developments either built or under consideration for the Burke area at the time of the incidents. James W. Robinson Secondary School opened the next year with nearly 3,900 students. While Fairfax County began to look seriously at land use planning issues in the 1950s, The first county-wide comprehensive land use plan was not adopted until 1975. Many people living in Fairfax County in the 1960s and 70s were disturbed to see pastures and woods give way to roads, subdivisions, and shopping centers. Being forced to watch helplessly while the face of your community changes around you can elicit strange behavior in some people, i.e. snapping and dressing up like a rabbit and going apeshit on homes with an axe! (laughs) And parked cars. (laughs) Fuck your window. Jesus fuck. Well, folks, that's all the info we can bring you on the first of our three urban legends for bullshit bridges. If you want to go and try your hand on making it through the tunnel this Halloween, I gave the address at the beginning of the episode. Also, as mentioned, you can literally just type in the Bunny Man bridge to Google Maps and it'll pop up. Keep in mind a few things though. Clifton is a suburban area, so please respect the privacy of the community and avoid loitering if you visit. If you are planning to go on Halloween, be aware that the local police are known to stop by the area and even block off the area around the bridge. They're not necessarily looking for the bunny man, but they are trying to protect people from wandering onto the tracks and getting splattered by trains. The Colchester Overpass is an active train route. So there is serious danger if you're wandering around at night. Don't be fucking stupid. Yeah. I love you guys. Please don't. Parking is not available and the tunnel under the bridge is one way and incredibly narrow. So if you drive through, remember to have your headlights on and proceed with caution. Of course, if you get all the way there and chicken shit out at the last minute and need a place to chill and have a good time, stop at the Bunny Man Brewing. Grab a couple friends and get shit shitfaced at this high-class microbrewery while hearing and telling stories with locals about the Bunny Man. You can even bring your dogs, kids, and your own food, as they are a brewery only. <laughs> they even have an event this year during Oktoberfest where you can get brats and beer while enjoying some of the fair's entertainment you can check out their website at bunnymanbrewing.com or on Facebook and with that we will be back after a short commercial break cause
1: that wasn't a commercial
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about ma'am <laughs>
1: Could definitely not no. no advertising here none <laughs>
0: I want to keep the podcast focused on content that entertains, informs, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. Your support would help the show grow so much. So I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. The whole thing will take 30 seconds. It's glow.fm forward slash something wicked. That's glow.fm forward slash S O M E T H I N G W I C K E D. We're asking for $3 a month, but you can contribute as much or as little as you'd like. If Something Wicked is part of your day or week and you love what we're doing, please visit glow.fm forward slash Something Wicked and support us any way you can today. It's dead simple. And again, will take no more than 30 seconds. Click the link in the show notes, pay with Apple or Google Pay, and click the link of the podcast player that you want to use. You can listen anywhere at any time. Happy listening. my lovelies for our next bridge we are traversing just over 1300 miles south to denton texas we are talking about of course the goatman bridge,
1: goatman bridge.
0: <laughs> the real name of this location is the old alton bridge but due to its infamy and horrifying legend it has thus been renamed located in lantana texas this historic iron trust bridge connects the cities of denton and copper canyon Built in 1884 by the King Iron Bridge Manufacturing Company, it originally carried horses and later automobiles over Hickory Creek at a location that was once a popular ford for crossing cattle. The bridge takes its name from the abandoned community of Alton, which between 1850 and 1856 was the seat of several ghost lore stories featuring a vengeful ghost. Alton's lively, strange history began in 1846 when government officials of the newly formed Denton County were looking for a county seat. The first pioneers of the county picked a remote location along Pecan Creek and named it Pickneyville after Texas's first governor, James Pickney Henderson. The- <laughs> what a I'm name. Sorry, I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the town only held the title of the county seat for two years before water shortages and they were forced to find a new site. In 1848, the government officials found another site on a high ridge between Pecan Creek and Hickory Creek, about a mile from the previous town and about a mile away from present-day Corinth. They named the town Alton. Alton would become the new county seat of Denton County. Alton was occupied by only a single resident, W.C. <laughs> w. Baines, who established a farmstead long before the town even existed. Well, shit. They, like, made a whole new town just for this motherfucker. Just around this guy. County business meetings ended up being held under a tree in Mr. Baines' backyard. <laughs> but even this location was considered unfavorable, most likely due to the lack of drinkable water in the town. The water problem was eventually resolved in november of 1850 by the texas state legislature by designating a brand new site on hickory creek only five miles south of where denton stands today the new town site kept the name of alton and application was submitted for a post office to be opened in the town as the application was pending a hotel and two stores were opened The town continued to attract attention, and in 1856, the town contained several homes, a blacksmith, another store, a school, a saloon, another hotel, two more doctors, and a lawyer. A church was also opened, the Hickory Creek Baptist Church that still operates weekly to this day. Oh, shit. In 1856, the citizens soured on Alton due to sickness caused by the bad water at this location. They signed a petition for another county seat, this time asking for better water sources and a more central location in the county. Later that year, Denton County held an election and accepted an offer from three businessmen. They claimed they would provide 100 acres of land for a new permanent county seat. They named the new site after the name of the county, and that new site became modern-day Denton. The need for Alton became obsolete as Denton was now proclaimed as the official county seat, and many subsequently moved to Denton. Denton became a boom town, and the population skyrocketed to around 1,000 in no time. Many businesses in Alton closed their doors, and in 1859, the post office closed forever, solidifying Alton's status as a ghost town.
1: Oh shit, that happened quick.
0: Just before the immediate death of the town, a cemetery was constructed in honor of the history of the little-known disaster that was Alton. The cemetery played a huge role in establishing old ghost stories about the town. The cemetery in the heart of Alton, aptly named the Old Alton Cemetery, contains many (laughs) graves some of which date all the way back to 1852. The old Alton Cemetery is often credited for having some of Denton cunt- con-
1: <laughs> Denton cunties.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Wow, I am on it today. <laughs> I am a whole mood today. <laughs>
1: Cutman Bridge. Because um, my
0: brain keeps going countries and I'm like, no, county
1: <laughs> Then we get counties <laughs> Fuck <laughs> Oh
0: man. The old Alden Cemetery is often credited for having some of Denton County's earliest settlers buried there. Even after the decline of Alton, many still visited the town to bury their loved ones in its cemetery, and the cemetery is still in frequent use today. Years after the decline of Alton, an iron through truss bridge was built in 1884, just south of the town site. It was built by the King Bridge Company, based in Cleveland, Ohio. The bridge was named similarly to the town in the cemetery and was named the Old Alton Bridge. The bridge acquired many nicknames over the years, some including the Argyle Bridge and the Goatman's Bridge among the locals. The heavily traveled Old Alton Bridge remained in constant use until 2001, when vehicle traffic was moved to an adjacent concrete and steel bridge. Prior to the new bridge, it was necessary for motorists to signal with a car horn before crossing the single lane span. The new bridge straightened out a sharp curve on both sides of the creek and provided additional travel lanes. With vehicle traffic removed, the bridge became an important link connecting the Elm Fork and Pilot Knoll hiking and equestrian trails. Today, it is a popular location for nature enthusiasts and photographers. Old Alton Bridge was included in the National Register of Historic Places on July 8th of 1988. The legend results in the area around Old Alton Bridge being popular among paranormal investigators such as the crews from Ghost Adventures and BuzzFeed Unsolved Supernatural.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I remember that episode.
0: Yep. Old Alton Bridge, which has been called Haunted Goatman's Bridge, attracts many brave and curious adventurers every year. Its supernatural atmosphere is too strong to resist, especially during the Halloween season. Because of this, many stories, paranormal or not, spread like wildfire. No one can be too sure if they're just rumors or if the legend lingers for real. One legend is from the year 1938. An African-American entrepreneur named Oscar Washburn and his family owned a goat farm known for their meat, milk, and cheese. One night, Washburn decided to put up a sign on Old Alton advertising his farm. This was the last straw for the local clan, and they began to plot their vengeance. Not too long after, a mob went out for Washburn. They dragged him to the bridge, where a noose was set for him. His screams echoed through the forest, begging to be spared. But his cries for help were ignored as they tightened the rope around his neck before tossing him over the bridge. Celebrating their victory, the clan headed down the bridge to see their success, Once they got to the bottom, their faces turned whiter than their frickin' cloaks. The noose hung undisturbed, and Washburn nowhere in sight. Good. To this day, no one has any idea where he went. Some say his irate spirit lurks through the forest, presenting himself as a satyr. Is this really Oscar Washburn, or is this creature behind the disappearance of Washburn, or is it a myth? The story has been passed around so many times that no one knows Oscar's true fate. Now, there was an Oscar Washburn who lived in Denton briefly in the early 1900s. I found the records from the Denton Public Library. So, okay, he was a white man. Oh. And by 1910, according to the census, he lived in Young County and was an out-of-work coal miner. And he died in June of 1917 and not by means of getting lynched.
1: Yeah, I mean, none of that would make sense, especially if he was a white man. Yeah. I wonder why whoever chose to go with his name.
0: Other popular stories surrounding Old Alton are the mysterious noises that only occur at night. Some claim to hear horses running through the forest, someone drowning in the river underneath the bridge, and ominous growling behind bushes and trees. No solid answer has been given for these anomalies, only leaving more questions to be left unanswered. Local legend says that if you knock on the steel bridge three times at midnight, or perhaps turn off your car lights and honk three times in summons, then you dare a visitation from the vengeful Goatman that's preceded by the stench of decaying flesh. Numerous reports tell of unholy, glowing eyes that burn red from the darkness, eerie glimpses of a large, snarling, goat-headed man-beast stomping in the wooded <laughs> shadows, or a frightening apparition of a maniacal satyr carrying the heads of goats or humans in his hands. Oh. Yeah. What
1: a gross fucking picture. The
0: terrifying encounters and reported vanishings have been so frequent as to warrant numerous investigations by paranormal groups. But like I said, there's more than one version that attempts an explanation for a century of recurring frights and sights encountered at the bridge. Some attribute to the work of Satanists who opened a portal for- Purtle.
1: Purtle. It's a purdy portal. (laughs) It's a purdle. (laughs)
0: So, <laughs> some attribute the work of satanists who opened a portal for a hellspawn demon while others say the goat man's wife is eternally searching for her murdered children
1: no it's definitely the satanists just <laughs> kidding
0: there is also another variation that predates the bridge itself in an account that may go back as far as the 1860s, Texas Troubles, some Copper Canyon boys lynched a Creole slave goat herder named Jack Kendall from a tall creekside tree near where the bridge now stands, but ineptitude separated the runaway slave's head from his body. The slavers then watched in horror as the headless body raised itself from the creek bed mud, animated by voodoo, and ripped off the head of a nearby goat to replace his own, still dangling in the noose! I'm sorry. There is so much bullshit in all, all of that. I... Yeah. First off, who did the voodoo? My brain. Who did that and then how was he able to reach down and rip so... a head off a random goat that just happened <laughs> it just to happened be there? happened to be
1: there. Perfect timing. Yeah. This is There's so many holes. It's a fucking
0: cheese grater. Regardless of which origin gets told, old timers warn that knocking three times on the trusses of the bridge is an invitation to judgment since the ghastly goatman only spirits away those with the bloodlines of clansmen or slave owners into the woods for his terrible revenge. You won't find the names of Oscar Washburn or Jack Kendall in any historical records... Most ghosts are given names because we need to feel like we can know them. Which, again, makes sense because Oscar Washburn, but I found out that he's a real fucking person. It's yeah. just not anything not to do with- the what... person that they made him out to be. As a mentor once wisely advised, never let the facts of a story obscure the truths in the tale. If history is a self-congratulatory narrative of a community written by its victorious elite, then our ghosts will often problematize and haunt such tidy romanticisms of back in the day. A handful of states have a goatman tale, with Texas having a few itself, but each expresses unique reminders of threats from a forgotten past. Liminal areas of crossing can be full of possibility and danger. Present injustices are informed by past prejudices, and there are critters like snakes or gators down in the creek young as my ought to be leery of the Goatman isn't just a haunting campfire tale it's also a reminder that an ignorance of our history is no protection from its everlasting consequences
1: ain't that the fucking truth
0: travelers say that if you cross the bridge without your headlights the goat man will meet you on the other side there have been reports of abandoned cars with no sign of their occupants vehicles breaking down or car doors being locked and unlocked of their own accord and some people have heard hoofbeats around the bridge. <laughs> this odd account of after-death transformation, if this is indeed the Goatman, bears some resemblance to the tales of the Donkey Lady Bridge or La Llorona.
1: La Llorona.
0: There have also been reports of inhuman screams coming from the nearby woods or maniacal laughter sounding. Neither of those sound pleasant. No. I think I will pass.
1: There's just some douchebag <laughs> in the
0: woods with some fucking coconuts. <laughs> <laughs>
1: On a Monty Python, making it sound like there's fucking hoofbeats around the damn Oh place.
0: my god. Today, unfortunately, you can't drive across the bridge anymore, but you can walk across it. There is a park nearby with easy access. For directions via Google Maps, type Denton Hiking Trail's Old Alton Bridge. There is another Goatman legend that takes place in Maryland as well, and it has an interesting background itself. If you're from Prince George's County, then you may have already heard about the legend of the goat man, which actually has its roots on the Route One corridor. The year was nineteen seventy. A researcher at Beltsville Agricultural Research Center was doing experiments on goats when something went awry. <laughs> oh no. Turning him into a hideous creature with the upper body of a goat. Then, at least, is one of the theories of the origin of the Goatman of Prince George's County, a legendary monster that has attracted international attention over the years. That's hilarious. The Goatman's territory ranges from Beltsville to Bowie, Mitchville and Upper Marlboro, with the story circulating from the 1950s to the 1970s, the heyday of suburban teenage folklore. One key moment came in October 27th, 1971, when the Bowie based Prince George's County News published an article about the University of Maryland folklore archives, which mentioned the Goatman and other local legends. Hmm. This tying into the Bunny Man. Yeah. Because it's the same paper.
1: Oh, Jesus Christ. Uh,
0: two weeks later, the same reporter published a follow up Residents fear Goatman lives. Dog found decapitated in old Bowie. Oh, my God. That's terrible. <laughs> About a family that believed the Goatman was responsible for the death of their puppy, Ginger. That's terrible!
1: What does he got against dogs?
0: The Washington Post followed up on November 30th, giving the local legend a national audience. By the following year, he was mentioned in American Graffiti when a character says, maybe it's the Goat Killer and he'll get somebody and we'll see the whole thing. Oh my god. I'll have to go back and watch that now. Right? The Goatman has competing origin stories. A variation of the scientific mishap story holds that a doctor named Stephen Fletcher confessed to creating it with the DNA of a goat and his assistant, William Lotsford. Two names clearly cribbed from the locations of Goatman sightings in Fletchertown and Lotsford Roads. (laughs) The research center shot down this version in 2013, noting it had been years since they even had goats at the facility don't you think he would have retired by now said a spokeswoman is his great grandson a goat man is he collecting social security (laughs) the fuck (laughs) other versions hold that he is a bigfoot like creature an evil spirit from native american beliefs named oki an angry goat herder out for revenge on the teenagers who killed his beloved goats or a hoax made up by local teens (laughs) (laughs) watch out for oki oh my god Members of two prominent local families told Prince George's County historian Mark Opsasnick that the- fucking name. S- <laughs> Mark Opsasnick that the stories began Say as- Oh my god! Gonna- I'm gonna have to now! <laughs> I know, that's Fuck I have you! <laughs> Members of the two prominent local families told Prince George's County historian Mark Obsasnik that the stories began as a way to keep their minds from wandering too far from home at a time when the area was largely rural. The goat man would get them if they didn't do as they were told, he wrote. Obsasnik. Oh my god, Dory, shut up. <laughs> oh. I don't make these names. I know. <laughs> I hate you. (laughs) Regardless of its origin, the Goatman has become an international phenomenon, inspiring a cheesy slasher flick, a British documentary, an episode of the X-Files, and a popular Route 1 haunted house in the early 2000s called Goatman Hollow. (laughs) The area around Governor Bridge is certainly creepy enough that one could envision a Goatman skulking about among the trees. It's not the kind of place one would like to find themselves at night. If you're going to look for the Goatman, know that the Governor Bridge is temporarily closed, but you never know, he might still be lurking nearby. (laughs) And headed back to Texas, the city of Plano has their own Goatman legend apart from the old Alton Bridge. With its rich history and diverse population, it's no surprise Plano has its own fascinating folklore. From Goatman's bridge to a spooky interurban passenger and a friendly ghost named Jonathan. <laughs> Planonites enjoyed resurrecting memories of popular urban legends. Although the old Alton Bridge in Denton and Dallas's White Rock Lake are home to more popular and well documented goatman tales, those growing up in Plano since the nineteen forties insist the city has its own goatman. The way I remember it is there was a goat farmer back in the late 1940s who went to school by Plano," said Kenny Smith, a former Plano resident who works at a radio station in Tyler. Evidently, he had a herd of goats and teenagers went into his land and decapitated them. It screwed him up bad enough where there were incidents in 1950 in which a couple teenagers disappeared. It even got to the point where there were kids that were drowning in the creek where Dublin Road crossed at the time. Legend has it this farmer possibly could have been responsible for all these freakish disappearances and these problems with these teenagers around that time. Oh my god. Smith said the story eventually grew and infiltrated the high school, and high school athletes began using Goatman's Bridge for initiation purposes. Oh no. If you had the guts to not believe the legend or myth about those specific happenings, then you could spend the night on the bridge, he said. I never heard of anyone who was stupid enough to do that. If you spent a night on the bridge, the ghost of the Goatman would get you. The bridge, which was allegedly near the Plano East High School, was built in 1981, was torn down, but the legend of the Goatman lives on in various forms.
1: (laughs) Fuck this bridge.
0: There was a story of a Goatman in Los Rios, said Tony Martin in a Facebook post. We were told that if we trespass on the golf course that this half-goat, half-man would chase you and throw horse apples at you.
1: I mean, at least it's not axes.
0: <laughs> he was a child of the former owners of the property when it was a farm. Supposedly several kids who tried and died don't let the goat man catch you. Barbie Oliver corroborated Martin's story and detailed her own personal encounter with the urban legend. He was a half-man, half-goat, and lived in the woods behind Bob Woodruff Park, said Barbie Oliver. We snuck out one night and went there. There was something out there. We swear to this day we saw him. If it wasn't him, someone who was out there trying to scare us... We found a dead goat and got the hell out of there. (laughs) (laughs) The story is that he lived there before Los Rios was built. Like Martin said, his family owned the land and he wouldn't leave after his parents died. And the land was sold for development. He roamed the woods at night and if you were caught out there after dark, you would never be heard from again. There were rumors of several missing people that were last known to go to that area after dark. All I know is I was a believer after that night. Never would I even drive that way anymore.
1: Oh my god.
0: So with all these variations, it really makes you wonder if there are in fact cryptids out there that have been spotted. Not necessarily that these beings are a result of some tragic past event and now the ghosts are out for revenge, but if at least three locations have similar description of a half-man, half-goat, demonic-like being, should we be watching for these terrifying beasts the next time we venture in the dark woods or cross a creepy old bridge at night alone in the dark?
1: I mean, that is a good point. (laughs)
0: And now, on to our third and final bridge, the Donkey Lady Bridge. The
1: Donkey Lady Bridge. (laughs)
0: Located at Applewhite Road, San Antonio, Texas, is the Donkey Lady Bridge. And yes, that is its real name. (laughs) There's no other name for it. It's just Donkey Lady Bridge. The literal bridge itself. Potentially, one of the most unsettling things about the Donkey Lady and her bridge is that there are so many origin stories for it. Oh, jeez. Years ago, most degrees sometime in the mid-1800s, a settler woman lived near the banks of Elm Creek with her husband and two children. The couple was barely scratching out a living from farming the stingy South Texas soil and raising a few head of livestock. One day, the son of a wealthy San Antonio merchant came riding onto or near their property. Somehow, the young man came into contact with a horse or mule belonging to the Pioneer family. The young man, the story goes, teased the animal and hit it with a stick. The poor animal retaliated in the only way it knew how to and bit the merchant's son. Enraged, the young man began to beat the animal even more severely than before. The poor creature's cries reached the ears of the Pioneer couple and they quickly rushed to the scene. It became obvious to the couple that their animal, no doubt vital to their livelihood, was about to be beaten to death. The couple began throwing rocks at their animal's assailant and pelted him several times. They did not realize this young man was the son of an important man in town. The young man hurled a string of expletives at the couple as he retreated, but swore he would get even with them. That night, a party of men, led by the wealthy merchant and his son, stealthily approached the young family's cabin and set fire to it with torches the heavily armed man refused to allow anyone inside the cabin to leave desperate the man of the house attempted to make a break for it in the hopes that his wife and children could escape while he distracted their attackers alas he was gunned down almost immediately upon setting foot outside the cabin the screams of the woman and her children as they burned alive were heard up and down the creek for over a mile oh my god just as the mob was sure that their unholy task was complete a figure engulfed in flames smashed through what was left of the cabin windows and staggered toward the stunned and now terrified men the woman's hands seemed to have been burned down to mere nubs, and her face appeared to have melted or sagged to the point that it was unnaturally long and deformed. The poor creature's clothes were gone, burned away, revealing skin charred completely black, yet somehow still on fire. The wretched creature that had once been a happy, sod-busting wife and mother let out a bone-chilling wail and then staggered past the men and hurled herself off the bank and into the waters of Elm Creek. The criminal mob followed to the point from which she had launched herself into the black water but saw no trace of her body. Her body, it is said, was never found. Since that terrible night, travelers who tarry too long on or near the bridge have occasionally reported terrifying run-ins with the donkey lady. Horrible screeching and screaming is reported from time to time, emanating from under the bridge or the surrounding woods. Some have claimed a malevolent creature of some kind has dropped onto the hood of the roof of the vehicle, screamed loudly, and scratched and clawed at the windows in an attempt to get at them. Photos exist of damage allegedly done to vehicles by the donkey lady. It is said that if you park on the bridge, shut off your headlights and wait, you will almost certainly encounter something truly terrifying. (laughs) The story has become so popular in Texas that back in 2018, they even set up the Donkey Lady hotline. As a Halloween special from midnight on Halloween to November 6th, residents could call the number provided, and each night a new 45-second message awaited callers. Wow! Her story would unfold in a series of segments as she reflected on modern-day San Antonio according to Maricela Barrera, a performance artist who claims to have had personal contact with the legendary lady. (laughs) I did find the number for it, but I'm not providing it because it was five years ago, so I have no idea if it is still in service. I don't want you guys calling some random person in Texas. Right. (laughs) Trying (laughs) to talk to the donkey lady. Is this the
1: donkey lady? (laughs) lady? Fucking no. God damn it. No,
0: this is Patrick. (laughs) You were like the 30th
1: person to call today.
0: (laughs) Fuck you all. And going along with the experiences that have been reported, on one site I found called Weird U.S., there are a couple of encounter stories in relation to the Donkey Lady. The first one comes from the Weird U.S. site itself, and it reads, Most of the Donkey Lady stories have faded into memory, but one was a little harder to shake. One of my best friends told of a cousin who was with his father and brother on a weekend outing. They were going to camp and do a little fishing in an unofficial county park. The group pulled up to a weed-infested area off a dirt road and began to make camp. The two boys had the task of unloading the pickup truck while the father found a suitable spot for the tent. While unloading the truck, one of the boys heard a rustling in the weeds just ahead of the truck. He told his brother, who in turn called out to their father to come to the truck. The three of them watched the tall weeds beneath the oaks away from the road bend under the weight of what was apparently a large animal. Then they heard an odd snorting sound and a high-pitched snarl. The father, not recognizing the sounds coming from the animal, decided they probably ought to find another spot to set up camp. (laughs) Well, no shit. Boys, we need to leave. (laughs) The three of them quickly threw the tent, sleeping bags, and gear into the back of their truck. While packing up, the father watched out of the corner of his eye as the weeds shook nearby. The prowler moved away from the trees and began heading for the general area of the road. The father urgently whispered for the boys to get in the truck fast. All three of them were in the truck in a flash and the father started it up. He put the truck in gear and was just pulling out in the road when something fast and large burst out of the weeds and ran at the front of the truck. Seconds later, a horrible apparition bounded up onto their hood and began shrieking at them through the glass. It was the ugliest thing any of them ever saw. (laughs) They swore it looked like a donkey, but it was mostly human. It screamed at them more as the truck continued to move away from the weeds and into the road. It used its deformed hands to punch at the windshield and broke it in many places. Jesus Christ. The father hit the brakes. The thing slid off the hood and onto the dirt road, throwing the truck into reverse. The father floored the gas pedal and put some distance between them and the thing backing into the weeds off in the road. He then put the truck into first and stepped on it again. That thing was coming up for them fast. They said it almost looked like a wild animal with an incredible look of rage and hatred in its eyes. Dirt sprayed up from the road at the beast as they pulled out, slowing it down just enough for them to get away. The donkey lady supposedly had finally dropped back and headed into the weeds. After the story was told and my friend let it be known that he thought it was a nice story, but, well, it was a nice story, then he was taken outside and shown the truck. The windshield was almost knocked off, the hood was dented, and his paint was scuffed and scraped. Jesus. The second one comes from Airborne, and it reads, The Donkey Lady Bridge is the bridge that crosses Elm Creek via Applewhite Road, approximately four miles north of Loop 1604 on the south side of San Antonio. The tales that I have on the Donkey Lady are not directly related to me. However, they were relayed to me through friends in high school. They are people I have known all my life and have no reason not to believe them. One night in late 1987, while at my best friend's house, four fellow companions showed up. Bored and looking for something to do, we suggested they visit the Donkey Lady Bridge. This locale was only a short drive from the house. They agreed and were soon driving out of sight. (laughs) They were like, yeah, sure, why not?
1: Go check out this bridge, it won't be boring.
0: About six hours later, their vehicle returned to our driveway with only one occupant. Assuming he had taken the girls home and was ready to party in San Antonio, we went out anxious to greet him. What we found at the car was something I'll never forget. The windshield was busted, the front dented, and there was what appeared to be blood all over the hood. Oh my god. We immediately ran to the driver's door to see if John, not his actual name, was all right. <laughs> he was just sitting there staring out the windshield with a blank expression on his face. Sock. After several minutes of consistent badgering, we finally got him to talk. He told us that he and his friend Lisa Terry and Jill had arrived at the bridge. They began to honk their horn and call for the donkey lady. According to the legend, this is how you're supposed to get her attention. After about 15 minutes of not seeing anything, they decided to go into the woods and look for her themselves. What happened next was truly unbelievable, and if I hadn't known John all my life and seen the car, I would not have believed it myself. While walking in the woods, John said that he got the feeling they were being watched. He immediately stopped and told everyone to be quiet. Looking around and evaluating the situation, he discovered in the distance what appeared to be two eyes staring at them. These eyes seemed to be reflecting from the moonlight and were of a color that he said was indescribable. The girls immediately panicked and began to run back to the car. John was quick to follow, and soon after he turned away, there was a horrible scream from the direction of the eyes. He described it as almost being a cry from an intelligent animal. Too afraid to turn around, he picked up his pace as he ran to the car. When he got there, the girls were already inside screaming at him to get in and leave. As he was trying to find his keys, he heard sounds of what seemed to be a horse running in their direction. Starting the car, he slammed it into gear and put the pedal to the floor. Suddenly, a figure appeared in the road in front of them. Too afraid to stop, John collided with the figure. It hit the hood of the car and rolled over the roof. Looking in his rearview mirror, he said he thought the figure got up and continued to pursue them.
1: Holy shit, dude.
0: After seeing this and seeing the condition of the car, my friend and I felt this deserved a second look. John told us that he would never return to that bridge again, but if we wanted to risk our lives to go right ahead. <laughs> Grabbing two flashlights and a pair of shotguns, this was the biggest weapon Steve's father had. Well, what the fuck else would he have besides a sh- Bigger than a shotgun. You got a fucking Gatlin gun in there? Some
1: fucking minigun. You know.
0: <laughs> we jumped in my pickup and made way for the bridge. As we drew closer, we slowed down and turned on the many off-road lights my truck had. These lit the road and woods to the side of us as if it were daytime, giving us an outside viewing of the bridge as we approached. The first thing we noticed as the bridge drew close was the large amount of blood on the road. However, this was the only evidence we could find of the incident described by John. Upon our investigation of the woods on foot, we discovered what seemed to be several tracks of a small horse, unshod, leading to the road. After several hours of looking and not finding anything else, we returned to the house. By this time, John had already found his way home, and we laid in bed, too excited to sleep. To this day, none of the people involved in this story have returned to the bridge. Did John actually see and strike the donkey lady that night, or was it merely a stray pony startled by their presence? All I know is that something was there that night, and it did scare our friends half to death. (laughs) Jesus Christ. And the third comes from The Backlash, and it reads, I had an incident similar to the one Airborne submitted. One weekend in 1989, some friends and I were driving around in the 1973 Impala one of them owned. Baby! (laughs) It is! (laughs) As we usually did. We were showing the younger cousins of the driver, Todd, around. They had turned 13 that year and were being inducted. We decided to drive to Donkey Lady Bridge, partly since we had never been there, partly to give them a good scare. Any child, particularly the south-slash-southeast-side ones that have grown up in San Antonio, knows about the donkey lady. There was even a phone number you could call to hear her, so they laughed and agreed to the idea. We drove out to the bridge, turning off the headlights before we were actually on it. It is very eerie out there at night. It was much more because of the almost full moon barely lighting the bridge. How is it barely lighting the bridge if it was an almost full moon? Anyway. Anyway... Todd started to slowly advance across the bridge when a figure appeared seemingly from nowhere in the middle of it. He stopped the car and we whispered speculations as to who or what it was. We were not expecting to see anything, much less this. Todd placed the car in gear again and honking his horn, slowly inched his way toward the figure, which promptly vanished. The car was stopped again and this made us shut up. Todd sat listening to our suggestions to back up or gun the car to the other side when something landed on the hood of the car. Everyone screamed and Todd slammed the car into reverse and floored it. The dark figure rolled from the hood and Todd didn't stop until we had reached the main road and made our way to Denny's on Southwest (laughs) Military near IH-10. Getting out, we all stared at the hood, which now sported two very deep dents in it. No one had an explanation of just where the figure had dropped from to make those. We went inside to eat, but just decided to call it a night. Todd took his car to a body shop the next day and had to replace the entire hood. The dents were too deep to pound out. Whoa! Incidentally, I was 17 when this happened, and I'm 30 today, and I have never been back out there.
1: I mean, it seems like whatever this thing is really hates cars.
0: The other thing I'm wondering though is that because it's so popular, if people go out there to prank others, how many people have been hit by cars? Yeah. I've thought that too. Like How many innocent people have been mowed down <laughs> by oh my God, there's teenagers? A person. <laughs>
1: Fucking Florent <it.
0: sighs> One origin story claims that the donkey lady was part of a farming family who lived outside San Antonio that met a terrible fate. In this iteration, the donkey lady's husband, the farmer, set fire to their home and family, leaving her horribly disfigured and grieving. Different variations of her story claim that she has been around since the 1950s, while others say she has been haunting the area since the 1800s. All iterations of the story come to the same conclusion, however, that the donkey lady haunts the area out of pain grief and restlessness occasionally it is said that the woman and her donkey were drowned rather than burned and that the villagers pushed the pair off the bridge to do so it is sometimes said she does not resemble her namesake but in versions of her origin story that involve pet donkeys has somehow become one with her namesake there is no consensus on what the actual case may be if we're going to break down these stories and the meaning behind them involving the donkey lady, let's start with the most popular, as I had briefly summarized in the beginning. A lady whose house, which was near the bridge over Small Creek, was burnt. She was a recluse and was asleep when the fire began. She herself was severely burnt, fingers and toes fused together to appear hoof-like, and her face so disfigured and sagging as to appear similar to that of a donkey or a horse. She is also said to have fallen while running from the blazing house, the bones of her hands and feet so burnt and brittle that they broke, leaving stumps as limbs. Afterwards, it is said she went completely insane, lived under the bridge, and roamed the woods on the south side of San Antonio. The further information is provided by a paper written entitled evoking the shadow beast where the author explains the social significance of how we as a society view those as other or abnormal and on her viewpoint being that the legend of the donkey lady is nothing more than a poor woman who is ostracized murdered and in spirit to this day is somewhat ridiculed
1: Mm, that's that's really sad way to look at it but yeah
0: yeah Perhaps the most important in this account of the narrative is the reason for which her house is set ablaze. As I understand it, the woman now known as the Donkey Lady was a spinster who lived alone, save for one donkey. This donkey was not used for labor, nor was he a source of income for the woman. Contrariwise, the woman cared for the donkey as though it were her own child, enjoying the donkey's companionship over that of the surrounding community. Legend has it that, on an unknown date, some of the children from the community that the woman lived in began goading both the woman and her donkey, presumably mocking them for being outsiders within the neighborhood. Provoked by the taunts of children, the donkey lashes out at the children, biting one of them in a harsh manner. Later that evening, the men of the community learn about the donkey's attack and confront the woman about the incident, rebuking her for caring for the donkey in such a way and allowing it to bite and presumably injure a child. When the woman does nothing to rectify the situation, essentially justifying the child's injury as punishment for tormenting both the donkey and herself, the men become angry and subsequently set fire to the woman's home in the dead of night. In escaping the fire, the woman suffered the horribly disfiguring injuries that, as described above, caused her appearance to transform from humanistic to animalistic as she became the fabled donkey lady. It is worth noting that in each variation of the folktale, the woman who later becomes known as the Donkey Lady is never named, but instead remains a mysterious, ambiguous character. Similarly, in nearly all of the narrative variations, the woman is not given the distinction of Donkey Lady until she becomes disfigured. What is also interesting about this folktale is that much ambiguity surrounds the time at which these events are believed to have taken place. Oral accounts of the story place the donkey lady in San Antonio as early as 1900 and as late as the 1950s, yet no definitive conclusion has been reached concerning either date of the event or the onset of the folktale's oral tradition. The ambiguity, however, has not put a damper on the popularity of the folktale as sources of San Antonians widely circulate their versions of the tale year-round, sparking much debate as to which narrative variation is the most authentic to San Antonio. This fascination with the authenticity of the tale can be seen as a contributing factor in San Antonio's persistent curiosity with the location known as Donkey Lady Bridge. The legend of the Donkey Lady is not limited to the folk tale itself, as many San Antonians who become familiarized with the tale find themselves making the pilgrimage to Donkey Lady Bridge located on the south side of San Antonio, Donkey Lady Bridge lies within a sparsely populated area. Accessible through a small street labeled Jet Road, the bridge is surrounded by lush vegetation hovering over a diminutive body of water known as Elm Creek. Though the area was originally cut off from visitation and blocked off to prevent unwanted visitors from coming dangerously close to the creek at night, it has since become a part of high-use Greenway Trail, opening the bridge to an increase in visitation and unprecedented accessibility. However, the previous lack of accessibility to Donkey Lady Bridge was never enough to keep locals from legend-tripping, the act of journeying to the site of a folklore narrative or legend to the infamous bridge. With a sparse few in their 40s and 50s only vaguely familiar with the legend of the Donkey Lady, the majority of those who venture to the bridge are from younger generations, searching for a quick late-night thrill, or perhaps drawn by sheer curiosity, Droves of San Antonian's frequent Donkey Lady Bridge, not only around Halloween, but year-round, seeking out the fabled creature-like woman, hoping to catch a glimpse of her glowing yellow eyes. As one local newspaper states, according to the legend, if you drive to the one-lane bridge at night, turn off your engine and begin honking to coax the Donkey Lady out of hiding, several things could and sometimes do happen. They include hearing the hee-haw of a donkey or a human imitating the sounds, or feeling the back of the vehicle dip suddenly and later finding donkey hoofprints on the vehicle. Over the years, numerous people have taken the Donkey Lady Bridge Dare and had scary experiences. Reports of confrontations with the Donkey Lady range from shock and terror as to the legitimacy of the tale to reformations of the narrative's folk status. And although many have attempted what is known as the Donkey Lady Bridge Challenge, the curiosity surrounding what is quickly becoming San Antonio's most popular cultural imagery never seems to diminish.
1: I'm expecting it to become like a TikTok challenge. (laughs) If it's not already, honestly, it probably could be.
0: Could be. So many question the cause of San Antonio's utter fascination with this fabled donkey woman, wondering if there could be more to the dissemination of the tale than the thrill of scaring young children or an attempt to squash adolescent boredom. More than a strange tale of a woman-turned-hideous beast, the Donkey Lady folktale holds significance beyond its status as merely a form of frightening entertainment. In theorizing the Donkey Lady folklore, a greater understanding of the intersections of queerness, disability, and race that lie just below the tale's surface can be acquired, thereby exposing a history of social injustice deeply rooted in the cultural haunting of the Donkey Lady to begin theorizing the donkey lady in terms of queerness disability and race it is imperative to understand how the immediate causes for her disfigurement are connected to broader socio-political issues of normativity concerned with the politics of representation focusing on creating knowledge about the histories activism and cultures of people who have been designated as other disability studies works to theorize the disabled not in terms of capabilities but instead brings attention to the ways in which social environments favor those who are normatively constituted. Yeah. In their article, Race, Ethnicity, Disability, and in Literature, Intersections and Interventions, Jennifer James and Cynthia Wu explain how disability as a label generates institutionalized exclusion for those who are not normatively constituted, whether mentally, physically, or emotionally. The distinction of disability essentially becomes a justification for ostracizing anyone who cannot conform to what society deems to be an acceptable way of life. In retelling the tale of the Donkey Lady, many individuals gloss over the fact that the initial cause of the Donkey Lady's disfigurement is a violent outburst from her own community. Mm -hmm. So much emphasis is placed on the frightening aspect of the story that blame is seemingly placed on the Donkey Lady for the violence that has been enacted upon her. A detailed reading of the Donkey Lady legend, however, exposes issues regarding inattentiveness towards unwarranted acts of violence against non-normative women. Because the Donkey Lady is a spinster caring for a childlike animal, she has essentially become a transgressive character deliberately acting against that which is considered to be normal for a woman. Rather than marrying, reproducing, and maintaining normative domestic roles, the Donkey Lady resists these roles, opting for the distinction of spinster and thereby establishing animosity between her and the men of the community. In her book The Spinster and Her Enemies, Sheila Jeffries explains the attitude towards spinsters and that of contempt for a creature who is chaste and therefore inhuman, this view of spinster women as inhuman due to their unwillingness to submit to normative gender roles resonates exponentially within the Donkey Lady folktale, as it further suggests that the woman's non-normative status is the main reason why she becomes brutalized.
1: Yeah, that points out a lot of different issues right then and there.
0: Mm-hmm. Living as a queer character, queer simply meaning non-normative, and making what Jeffreys refers to as a positive choice not to marry... The Donkey Lady is automatically viewed as less than human and therefore devalued as a result of her transgressive status. The dehumanized perception that the community has of the Donkey Lady is clearly a major contributing factor in her violent disfigurement. It is almost as if the men of the community seek to turn her into the inhuman monster they considered her to be by setting fire to her home and causing her to appear animalistic rather than human. The relationship between the woman and her donkey represents yet another contributing factor to the hostility and animosity between the woman and her community. Rather than using the donkey for labor, the woman views the donkey as more of a child than the laborious animal. The maternal feelings that the woman displays toward the donkey complicate the relationship between woman and beast as this queer, non-normative relationship can be seen as representing failed motherhood. As previously mentioned, the woman is chastised for caring for the donkey as a child, but in allowing the animal to injure an actual child, the woman exhibits a form of failed maternity. Instead of protecting the child from the donkey, an act that would presumably align with the normative woman's maternal instincts, the woman allows her symbolic child, the donkey, to inflict pain on the child, and failing to intervene during the incident and essentially siding with the donkey, the woman establishes herself as a queer mother figure, resisting normative maternal instincts and instead taking part in a queer non-normative maternal relationship with her donkey. Interestingly, the donkey lady's failed maternity aligns with the failed maternity in the La Llorona folklore, but deviates significantly due to the fact that donkey lady represents a queer motherhood. The queer motherhood that the donkey lady creates for herself becomes conflated with her transgressive, non-normative identity, as she is now not only a spinster woman, but also a non-productive, queer mother caring for a creature that she herself did not birth. For this reason, the donkey lady's inaction toward her donkey's retaliation triggers a series of violent events that occur following the children's taunting. The location of the Donkey Lady Bridge is also a contributing factor in the complicated and violent relationship that develops between the Donkey Lady and the community that brutalizes her as the bridge's liminal location works to solidify her non-normative status. The bridge itself is located in a space that is between both urban and rural locations. It is surrounded by rural, undeveloped land, yet it is not free from the urbanization that follows its distinction as a multi-use trail. Skirting the lines of both communities, Donkey Lady Bridge establishes itself as a third space within which the Donkey Lady resides. Philosopher and social theorist Michael Fulcat conceives of these third spaces, or liminal locations, as those places in which individuals whose behavior is deviant in relation to the required mean or norm are placed. The Donkey Lady fits this description through her transgressions against what the community considers to be normative behavior for a woman. Thus, Donkey Lady Bridge represents the woman's denied passage into the normative world as it physically separates her from the normative community, thereby solidifying her queer status. Although her queer status forces the Donkey Lady to live in a liminal space, divorced from the rest of the community, her secluded liminality does not prevent the community from forcefully intruding on her solitude when provoked by the donkey's attack. As Folcat points out, in general, liminal locations such as the Donkey Lady Bridge are not freely accessible like a public place, requiring those who wish to enter to have certain permission and make certain gestures. Yet, in the case of the Donkey Lady, this permission is never given. What results is the forced entry of the normative world into a queered, deviant third space that the Donkey Lady inhabits. This forced entry, within both the Donkey Lady narrative and the legend trip to Donkey Lady Bridge, becomes representative of the violent intrusion of normative prejudice into the vulnerable world of the non-normative, leading to the ghastly brutalization of the Donkey Lady. Each of these immediate causes for the Donkey Lady's disfigurement exposes prejudices that lead to blame being placed on non-normative victims rather than the perpetrators of violence against such individuals, while simultaneously revealing a broad history of social injustice against those who are non-normative. Within the donkey lady narrative, it may seem as though the woman's inaction and general lax attitude toward her donkey's attacks on the child invites brutality against her, but blame for these acts should be placed with the party responsible rather than the victim of such a violent act. By ignoring pre-existing prejudices against the donkey lady, participants in the folktale seek to reinforce predispositions for placing blame on victims rather than focusing attention on the reasons behind such brutalization. Concerned primarily with the delightfully terrifying thought of a beast-like woman lurking in the woods near a bridge, San Antonians fail to consider the reasons behind the woman's animalistic deformations. In doing so, these individuals are ignorant of the fact that the donkey lady is actually the victim of a cruel display of violence, rather than some nameless woman who becomes disfigured in a house fire. The failure of most, if not all, San Antonians to recognize that the cause behind this violence is the donkey lady's queer identity— leads to the belief that the woman is somehow responsible for her own disfigurement. However, this is not the case. It is integral to the Donkey Lady folktale to understand that the woman's disfigurement comes not at her own hands, but at the hands of a violent community seeking to expel her for her non-normative status. Furthermore, in ignoring the fact that the Donkey Lady is a victim within her folktale, participants regress into the socio-historical role of placing blame with the victims of violent attacks rather than offenders. What this problematic role translates to is the perpetuation of the idea that the Donkey Lady initially had it coming, a belief that is likely the reason for the Donkey Lady's haunting. Additionally, suggesting that the Donkey Lady somehow invited this violent event as a result of her inaction raises troubling queries about the woman's agency within the Donkey Lady narrative. By implying that the woman had this event coming to her, participants in the Donkey Lady narrative take away any agency the woman may have had. Rather than her being responsible for the events that happen to her, the woman is no longer in control of the events that happen in her life if those who transmit the tale believe this violence to be inevitable. What this suggests is that the donkey lady is only enabled with agency when she acts of her own volition, not when participants in the narrative make dangerous assumptions about the woman's relationship to her community. Also interesting about the Donkey Lady's struggle for agency is the fact that the woman remains nameless in the Donkey Lady narrative until she becomes the victim of unwarranted brutality. According to the accounts of numerous San Antonians, the name of the woman is not known within the Donkey Lady narrative. Instead, she is simply referred to as a mysterious recluse. Because the woman is not named until after her disfigurement, her identity is entangled in her distinction as a disabled character, granting her partial agency through her disabled status. In disregarding all notions of violence inflicted against non-normative women, readers enact historical views of cruelty and force towards those unwilling or unable to conform. These prejudices against transgressive individuals reaffirm broad socio-historical views of non-normative women, spinsters, queer mothers, etc., as having no place in society and thus becoming the victims of violence and backlash from the communities that reject them. Such is the case of San Antonio's Donkey Lady, As a result of the act of savage brutality performed against the Donkey Lady, she is left horribly disfigured, causing her to descend further from the normative and forcing her to shelter herself within the overgrowth and solitude of Donkey Lady Bridge. Because of the socio-political issues surrounding the narrative of the Donkey Lady, her legend continues to haunt minds of San Antonio residents, carrying with it an underlying current of issues regarding both gender-based violence and violence towards non-normative. So this, in conclusion, begs the question, who is the real monster?
1: It was definitely the people who set her house on fire.
0: Yeah, no, I can totally agree with that. Yeah, no,
1: I felt that even before all this. But yeah, no, that's Mm -hmm. a very good way to kind of lay it all out there. Mm Because she was not to blame for what happened.
0: No, absolutely agree. Whatever the story, intrepid visitors to Donkey Lady Bridge just inside Loop 1604 near the intersection of Applewhite and Jet Roads tell tales of horrifying braying of a donkey mixed with anguished screams of a woman in the dark woods late at night, sometimes said to be the woman's ghost, sometimes an actual living creature. Either way, drivers are warned not to be surprised to find damage to their cars in the form of claw marks on the hood, a cracked windshield, and even blood. But as of today, no cars are allowed on the bridge. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder why. (laughs) Due to the gate the authorities have placed over it to block it. Uh, They're like, I'm tired of people fucking calling us for this stupid shit. Yeah, pretty much. But it can be accessed still, however, on foot by traversing the Medina River Greenway Park Trail, where there is parking by the entrance. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, what do you think, my lovelies? Are these three terrifying tales based on fact or fiction? Do we have horrifying cryptids lurking in the shadows of these locations, or is it just a collection of stories that grew into fantastical narrative to scare children and sometimes adults in the dark recesses of a quiet night? thanks so much for listening we hope you enjoyed the episode i like this one
1: quite a lot
0: (laughs) tune in next time for more ghastly ghouls and haunted histories don't forget to follow us on anchor follow the links in the show notes to grab your merch support us on glow and hop on over to our facebook group for updates on new episodes laters